A warning before we get started. This episode includes descriptions of violence and mentions rape. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shemitha Basu. Today, murder, mercy, and the death penalty. Nearly 30 years ago, James Bernard Belcher, who goes by his middle name Bernard, was found guilty of committing a devastating crime, raping, strangling, and drowning 29-year-old Jennifer Embry. The jury took only 16 minutes to agree to sentence him to death. As is often the case, he's spent years behind bars on death row. Now, recently, Bernard was given a second chance, a resentencing an opportunity for a judge and jury to decide whether he should serve a life sentence instead. This time with new evidence, not about the murder itself, but evidence about Bernard, who he is as a person, and what may have led him to kill. This is not just a man driven by inexplicable evil who rapes and kills and, you know, is a psychopath in training. Maurice Shema is a reporter for The Marshall Project. It's a kid who was immersed in violence and in sexual violence eventually for really his entire upbringing and who then got out and did not have the resources to get past that. Maurice has written about the death sentence and people affected by it for years. And he recently wrote about Bernard's case. He says it shows how much our conversations around criminal justice and the death penalty have shifted from the 90s until now. And while Maurice would say we still have a long way to go, the fact that we are finally starting to recognize the humanity and trauma of the people who commit violent crimes could be a real turning point in how we think about justice. So we don't have a solid scientific explanation of how early childhood trauma leads people towards violence later in their lives. Certainly plenty of people experience trauma at a young age and do not go on to victimize other people. But what we do know is that PTSD, post-traumatic stress, can cause some changes in the amygdala, which is a part of the human brain that governs emotion. And there can be a rewiring through trauma of the fight-or-flight response. And, of course, when you say fight-or-flight, the second word is fight, which implies sort of increased levels of aggression as a result of some of this trauma. And... We also know that among people who have been sentenced to death already, when they're interviewed, there is a much higher likelihood than the general population that they have suffered trauma. There's also a higher likelihood that they have suffered a brain injury as a young person or some kind of mental illness that went untreated and undiagnosed. And when I say trauma, this can mean physical harm. It can mean sexual assault as a child. I cannot count the number of times that I have learned someone who was on death row was sexually assaulted themselves as a child. That's an incredibly common story. So the science is still very nascent, but we're starting to get bits and pieces of evidence that start to tell this story. Hmm. So in Bernard's case, you met up with someone that the defense team had hired for the resentencing trial. Her title is mitigation specialist. What exactly does that mean? What what is the role of this person? Yeah, it's not a particularly revealing title. Some in the field call it a life history investigator, which is maybe a little more revealing. Oh, interesting. So mitigation specialists are this 
very specific role that emerges in the world of the death penalty starting in the 1970s. And by the early 2000s, they have really become a mainstay of these cases. They try to get past that dichotomy of mercy and punishment and really look into the actual life stories of these people and understand more of the why behind the crimes Mm. so that we're not just describing people who commit crimes as evil, as monsters, but that we try to unpack more about what it is that made them the way that they are and led them to the crimes that they committed. Mm. So in Bernard's case, the mitigation specialist was a woman named Sarah Baldwin. You got Bernard's consent to shadow her while she was working on this case. So can you describe her process? How does she how does she start her work? Sure. She's a very charismatic person. She's really good at getting people to open up. She has really strong eye contact. She has this kind of gravelly voice in which she just kind of emits curiosity at you in a way, and you want to satiate her curiosity. Mm. And having spent this time with her, I kind of understood why Bernard, who had been really pretty closed off to his lawyers until 2018, starts to open up to her. And he describes spending the first few years of his life with his grandparents in Jacksonville, Florida, before going up to New York to live with his mother and a stepfather into his teenage years. And this is where he starts to get into trouble. And she's doing these interviews with Bernard, but then she also flies to New York. And probably the most compelling anecdote from my trip to New York with Sarah was when we went to this nursing home where she tracked down Bernard's father. And Bernard had had a relationship with his father, but a limited one because the parents divorced when he was very young. And this was a man in his 80s who was living in this nursing home in Long Island. And eventually he shows her these scars on his hands and then he lifts up his shirt and there's a huge pink scar across his belly. And he says that Erlene Floyd, who is Bernard's mother and his first wife, stabbed him when he confronted her about seeing other men. She denies this. She denies seeing other men. She does not deny stabbing him. Hmm. That story checked out from both parties. And she says that he was jealous and controlling and violent with her. And so she was defending herself. And on some level, it was a bit of he said, she said about a divorce that happened, you know, half a century ago. But on the other hand, these people were corroborating each other, that there was violence in this household and that Bernard from a very young age was seeing blood on his father that his mother had produced. It makes you wonder if he as a child had thought, you know, I am at some risk or violence and intimacy are are bound together in this way, that that was a lesson maybe he learned at a very young age. Sarah continues piecing Bernard's childhood together. He described all these moments where, you know, he would play in trash in a public housing area of New York City. And he really got this message that, like, he doesn't deserve much in life. And she spoke with Bernard's cousin, Wayne Deese who had a really similar childhood. He describes the horrible housing projects that he was in, the smell of urine in these places, the constant violence, the muggings, the way that every day was sort of a struggle for you. He referred to his neighborhood as a jungle and described his early life as one of just constant threats to his survival. But Wayne went on to have a very different life. Wayne is almost like an alternate path of who Bernard could have been. He got lucky. First, he was bused to a school in a white neighborhood, and then his parents put him in private school, which Bernard's parents did not. And he managed to kind of climb out of this world, and he eventually went on to be a Wall Street banker. He had a stint as a journalist. He wrote for the New York Times. I found his old bylines. And it was stunning to see that Bernard was from this family of people with massive accomplishments. I mean, his uncle had served on the New York City Council. 
and another aunt was a administrator at a university. So this was mm-hmm. a really, really mm-hmm. accomplished family. And Bernard was from this one part of the family tree that splinters off partially because of his mother's choices. She married a man who ran a pool hall and was involved in a lot of illegal gambling. He ran numbers games in Brooklyn in the 1970s. And he taught Bernard basically crime, right? In some of Bernard's early arrest records, he has a fake name. He's actually known as, instead of James Bernard Belcher, he's just known as James Brown, like the singer. Hmm. And I wondered why this is. And come to find out, it's because his stepfather taught him, if you get arrested, don't give him your real name. Use an alias. And that makes it harder for them to kind of build a record against you over the course of, you know, your multiple robberies. Oh, wow. So where his cousin was going to a private school and had parents putting in, you know, long work days to send him to that private school, he's getting from his stepfather lessons in how to commit crime. Yeah. I mean, let's talk for a moment about some of his early arrests and those experiences. He had spent some time on Rikers Island. What did Sarah learn about his time there and how it might have shaped him? So Bernard's a teenager. He's going to these schools that are under-resourced. At one point, he sees a friend get shot by a security officer, and he's cradling that friend's head, and he has blood on his pants during his school day. So he's surrounded by violence, and he also doesn't have much money. His parents are struggling, and he starts to commit robberies. First, he just steals money out of coat pockets from teachers at school, and then he becomes more brazen, and he pretends to have a gun in his pocket, like we've seen in the movies, and he mugs women on the street. And he gets arrested. His whole haul at this point is about $90. A court-appointed psychiatrist says, look, this is just a poor kid who, who wanted money and was desperate and is really remorseful about what he did. And in the records, you see that he was almost sent to a juvenile facility where he might have gotten intensive counseling. He might have gotten the sort of help that would put him back out on the street with a few more psychological resources. But instead, he's sent to adult prison. And he goes to Rikers Island, the jail in New York City, And then he goes to some prisons in upstate New York. And these places have been famous for their dysfunction and violence and and really almost torturous conditions for decades and decades. And that was also true in the 1970s when he went. He tells these stories about how his best friend in the prison was sexually assaulted by older prisoners every day. And Mm -hmm. he describes how... He would just be sitting in the day room with a bunch of other kids, teenagers, and somebody would push up a ceiling tile and knives would fall out and there would be this massive knife fight and he would scramble to try to get out of the room. So violence was constant and surrounded him and it was an environment in which you had to resort to violence yourself just to survive. So after he goes through all this at Rikers and upstate prisons, he comes out of prison and his uncle, who is one of these successful family members, gets him into a college, a good college in Poughkeepsie, New York. But he's in class and he's having flashbacks to these rapes that he witnessed in prison. Bernard says he was never sexually assaulted himself. But even if he only experienced it vicariously, you know, that would have this profound effect on him. And he's having these flashbacks in his college classes and he then resorts to stealing again. He is expelled from the college and this leads him down years of committing more crimes, going back to prison, and these crimes slowly start to escalate. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I was thinking a lot about that you write about in the piece is how tricky it is for someone in Sarah's position, the mitigation specialist here, and then the team of lawyers that she's working with, 
how tricky it is to sort of walk that line between explanation and excuse. The goal of a mitigation specialist, I think they would tell you that it's not necessarily to explain the crime because that is often impossible. It's to investigate the life story and find all of the evidence that would, quote, mitigate the punishment. Evidence of remorse and not just traumas from the past, but maybe good behavior, things that they have done that suggest that they can live a productive, meaningful life in prison. So Mm. Bernard went to prison and I've described all of the terrible things that he witnessed and absorbed there. But he also found his personality in a positive sense as well. He became a mentor to younger prisoners and would encourage them to not be violent in prison and to do their time and to get an education and to get out and live productive lives. So he did learn to have this role almost as a father figure to these younger prisoners. Younger prisoners, in fact, said this about him, that that he was like a father to me. Hmm. So that's what mitigation specialists do. And the way that they talk about it is never, we're going to explain this crime. It's usually more along the lines of, we're going to contextualize it and we're going to give you enough insight into the circumstances around it that you will at least feel some mercy for this person. Hmm. Because ultimately... The defense is not asking the jury to release this person onto the street tomorrow. They're asking the jury to sentence them to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah. So tell us what happened at the resentencing, which happened in September of 2022. Mm -hmm. What happened there and what effect did the mitigation specialist's work seem to have? So I followed Sarah's work as she investigated Bernard's life over the course of last year, multiple trips to New York and Florida. And then in September of 2022, Bernard finally faced his resentencing hearing in Florida. And I I spent two weeks just going to the courthouse every day, watching as they picked a jury, and then watching as the defense presented all of this material that Sarah had unearthed. I felt like I had watched a movie get made in a way. There was something very cinematic about her story. And it was like I was then finally getting to watch the final film and also watch people's reaction to it. So Mm. I was seeing Wayne Deese, this cousin that I described, who had a very successful life path, get up, you know, in his double-breasted suit with his pocket square and describe what a tragedy, he used that word multiple times, what a tragedy Bernard's life had been. I saw Bernard's mother get up and admit on the stand things that I could not have imagined her admitting a year earlier. You know, she said when he got out of jail and prison, everyone said I should send him to a psychiatrist to get him some help for what he'd been through. She said something like, I only thought crazy people had to go get that kind of help. And that's what I was dumb enough to think was her phrase. She also admitted to stabbing her ex-husband, producing those scars that I described earlier. And the prosecution had a pretty compelling case of its own. They brought in a woman named Wanda White, who had been Bernard's other victim. He had conned her. He had gotten her dress. He had gone into her house late at night and tied her up and gagged her and masturbated over her back. And I remember when she was giving this testimony, it was deathly silent in that courtroom. So both sides gave a very dramatic and very cinematic presentation about why this man deserved either the death penalty on the one hand or life in prison on the other. And then after a few hours, the jury comes back in. And I don't think it's too much to say that it's one of the most impactful experiences I've ever had as a reporter. You knew that the end result was either going to be this man lives or this man dies. And if they chose 
to sentence him to death, it would be almost like watching someone get killed. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I remember just sort of clutching my <laughs> my knees and, and feeling very, very anxious. And then over the course of 20 minutes, the jury goes factor by factor describing whether they agree or found that there was enough evidence to support each of these contentions that the defense had made about Bernard's life. At least three, if not four jurors, perhaps more, decided that the mitigating factors outweighed the aggravating factors, which was a very technical way of saying Bernard is going to be sentenced to life, not death. And as that reality sunk in, Erlene, his mother, was sitting behind me, just starts rocking back and forth and saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Sarah leans over to her and whispers, you're free. You're free, Erlene. And it was a very intense experience. Although this was a big victory for Bernard and his family, the victim's family was in the courtroom, too. They had sat through the whole trial as well. For ethical reasons, I had not approached them yet about my reporting. I approached them afterwards, and they declined an interview. But it was a really dramatic lesson to me in how little this process sort of had to offer them. Mm. Because, Mm. you know, they knew this man had killed their loved one. They got up on the stand and described what an incredible woman Jennifer Embry was and how much it devastated their family that she was murdered. This was part of the prosecution's case. They made these victim impact statements. And he had been sentenced to death in 2001. So they didn't ask to have to come back to court and sit through this all again, the sort of worst, basically, traumas of their own lives. So the legal system, I felt like, had really kind of jerked them around by offering, if not closure, at least an end to that story. And then it yanked it away. And that didn't feel like a system we would really want. That didn't feel like something, if you were devising this in order to create as much healing as possible, that you would create. The system is still far from perfect, and justice is complicated. But Maurice says we are seeing movement in a more holistic, more merciful direction. There is very much an understanding now across the U.S., I think both on the left and right, that our prison system is overly punitive, and it fails to make us safer. Over time, prosecutors and the public are getting this message that the death penalty really should just be reserved for the worst of the worst, and the numbers start to reflect that. Fewer and fewer people are sentenced to death every year. Maurice says this is in part thanks to the work of mitigation specialists. The more we try to understand how society has failed the people who go on to commit terrible crimes, the more likely we are to spot patterns and maybe even intervene to get them the help they need. One mitigation specialist told me that the fact that people like Sarah are out there doing this work is actually just a comment on how dehumanizing the system is otherwise, that we need some sort of specialized investigator to go prove that people are human beings with complicated life stories as if that wouldn't be represented in the system otherwise. We have a long way to go as a country in terms of the science of why people commit crimes, but I felt like mitigation specialists are kind of 10, 20, 30 years ahead in terms of the thinking and are doing a sort of work that I think will become more and more accepted and understood, not just in high-profile death penalty cases and murders, but when it comes to all crimes. So how is Bernard doing now? How is he feeling after this new sentencing? He was extremely relieved when I went to see him after the trial at his new prison. And he was looking ahead with a lot of ambivalence, I should say, about what life in prison would look like for him. Because although he had been a mentor to these young men in the past, for all these years on death row, he had been in a kind of solitary confinement cell 
And so he was not used to interacting with a lot of other incarcerated people and was now going to have to go back to that. So it's complicated. He still really can't explain why he killed Jennifer Embry, and he feels an incredible amount of pain. But he did say that there was something healing about the process in that he he was able to see how his childhood shaped him. Mm. So this process did Mm. offer him at least some measure of, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say healing, but at least it helped him understand himself for what it's worth. Maurice, thank you so much for this very sensitive reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can read Maurice Shema's reporting for the Marshall Project on Apple News. We'll include a link for you on our show notes page. And if you're enjoying this show in conversation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. 